Welcome to the Growth Investing Secret Podcast. This is Calvin Sito. And this is Jonathan Ang. The reason why we started this podcast is to help each household to have at least one full-time investor by investing to high-growth companies called super stocks. We didn't come from well-to-do backgrounds and after many years of investing, we finally became full-time investors before the age of 30. This was only possible with growth investing. Our mission is to help both beginner and experienced investors get better investment returns. Don't settle for less. It is very possible that you can achieve out-of-the-world results and we have proven that it is possible through the returns of our community. So now, let's be committed to learn, dive in and get started on today's episode. All content from participants shall not be treated as professional advice or recommendation to buy or sell any position in any financial-related instruments. The content is made available for educational purpose only. We may buy any securities mentioned and we may stand to benefit financially if they rise in value. You should seek independent financial and legal advice before making any financial decisions. Welcome everyone to our podcast. If you love our podcast, share this podcast with more people so they will benefit from it. Some of you may know that we have interviewed some incredible investors from Singapore, America, and Canada. Today's guest is Max Cole from Singapore. He's putting Singapore on the world map through his incredibly insightful tweets on Twitter. We have been friends for some time and we share mutual respect for each other. Before the age of 30, he has achieved remarkable results for his portfolio and secured his version of financial freedom. So today is going to be a good interview and I'm excited to introduce to you Max Cole. Hello, uh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to actually listen to so many podcasts of yours, Calvin. So I'm very glad to be here to share my growth investing journey and my knowledge. Thank you. Wonderful. So let's kick off by unveiling the man behind the Twitter account. Hey, Mexico. You have been a prolific writer on Twitter. Your content is often retweeted by people. Um, I see that you have connected with some remarkable investors on Twitter as well. But the thing is that, you know, you are still extremely humble despite your achievements. So why not you start off by telling a bit about yourself? When do you start investing and how your journey has been like? Well, yeah, firstly, that's a very uh, flattering introduction, right? So uh, yeah, I think I'll just go a bit back. So probably won't share my whole life story because it's going to be very long. So generally, just to cut to the investing part, uh, I started investing in companies from a long-term perspective, uh, mainly in 2019. So that's when I kind of, uh, due to my career and my job had a decent capital base, uh, decent six-figure sum that I was just annoyed because obviously the OCBC 365 is pretty nice. It doesn't give you the best returns. La. So I got very frustrated. That is, uh, I was thinking there has to be a better way to grow this money. So I started searching online. So in early 2019, I think in the even start of 2019, I started learning about long-term investing. So I chanced upon a few courses online. And then that's when I kind of learned this thing called net-net investing. So uh, for the listeners here who are a bit newer, that's like cigar butt investing, where you pick stocks that are kind of basically like the cash on the book is more than the market cap. And like, okay, crap, this is so awesome. This is so cool. It's like so cheap. And then I started to just invest in those. And then long story short, I think um, every investor goes through this typical cycle. So didn't get anywhere, no, not much results. So that's why I started searching online. And funny enough, uh, I came across in 2019, around March or April, I forgot when was it, around early parts of 2019, came across a uh, growth investing mastery, which is Jim, which uh, just nice, it's uh, your course, Kelvin or Kelvester. And I think that kind of opened my eyes up to the world of uh, growth investing. So that was when I really got bitten by the investing bug because I think from the net-net um, side of things, the, the part where I learned how, how to find cigar, but even though that wasn't the most uh, helpful for my returns, it did teach me how to actually analyze a business from the financial point of view. When you look at the balance sheet, income statement, what have you, and it's only after 
after getting into growth investing, which you were the first person to open my eyes to that, teaching me how to um, how to find like companies that are growing earnings that they may be lost making, but as long as they're growing, uh, that's really how the share price will get pushed up because without growth, uh, it will not move. So that really pushed me down the whole rabbit hole of growth investing. I started to read up a lot more on that topic. And then, of course, uh, that's how I got started on this whole journey. And then, interesting enough is that Just Nice, when I started investing, was around mid-2019. So, had a few months of experience there. And then, 2020 came along and we know what happened. And interestingly enough, 2020 was the year that I experienced the biggest growth. Uh, I wouldn't say it's not just portfolio-wise because I think most group investors, 2020 is a good time for a portfolio, but it's more from a personal point of view where uh, in Singapore, for anyone listening from Singapore, you probably know we went into a lockdown or like the whole world, whole damn world went to lockdown. So that was when I realized that, oh, awesome. I didn't need to commute to work. I could wake up a bit later. So every night I keep, you know, so I work from like 10 a.m. to like 6 p.m. Uh, 7 p.m. I work as about 7, 8 p.m. back then. And then I would recall back then, I would read like annual reports, um, like company analysis from like 8 p.m. all the way to 1 a.m. And it was the best period of growth I ever felt in my life. If, yeah, really like for the that two months I was stuck at home because like I just went deep down into really knowing how to analyze companies. And I think from a personal point of view, that was amazing. I got addicted to investing, realizing that, wow, I can actually read and learn and make money at the same time because I've been a big nerd since young. I always loved reading. So I thought, wow, this is, I think a very rare job where I finally find that calling where you can just read and read and read and you get paid and not just get paid, you get paid really well for this if you pick the right companies, right? So that was how the whole thing started. And then in mid-2020, when I first crossed my seven figures, my portfolio, that was like, I was like, I don't know whether I'm allowed to swear, but I was like, holy shit, like this thing really works. Like, like this whole growth investing really works. And so that was how it got me addicted. Until today, uh, I'm still very, very into investing, but I love it not so much for the returns, but really just allows me to have that channel outlet to just let my curiosities run while you learn about the world, about different businesses, and you make good money assuming you're in the right businesses. So that's a long answer to your short story. <laughs> a oh, short question. Sorry. Oh, that's really cool. So, you know, I just want to say that among all the Singaporean investors that I know about who are on Twitter, you're one that I would say the breakout star among all the Singaporean investors. So you have gotten quite a bit of attention and also you have gotten to, to meet some incredible people. What would you like to share with our listeners about Twitter as a platform? What, what surprises you the most about Twitter? Okay, so I'll just give two uh, answers. First of all, let's just use Twitter in general from a learning point of view, assuming you're following the right accounts. I like to use this metaphor. I think reading about investing on Twitter it's like drinking from a damn fire hose. It's like now in front of us, you guys will be able to see we have a jug of water here drinking from a cup. <laughs> Twitter is like you turn on the, the freaking fire hose and you just like gulp it down, which is a bit like a... Back in days, I think the Japanese used to torture people with this thing anyway. You bloat the stomach with water. So it's drinking from fire hose, which is amazing because uh, as a new beginner, you absorb so much and that's when it can get pretty scary. But if you ask me, the main benefit that I think investors can get from Twitter, or we call it FinTweet, right? Financial Tweet, which is the financial space of Twitter, is that you're exposed to people who are like you, everyday average people, and that really inspires you because you realize that, wow, uh, like most people when you start investing, who do you look at? Oh, Warren Buffett, that guy in Omaha with a few billion dollars in the bank. So you, you're inspired, but you can't really relate. And then you see average, ordinary people, fund managers that uh, you're so inspired by, which we'll talk more about later. And then like they are on Twitter sharing their ideas. Average people like you and me sharing their ideas realize that, wow, uh, there is so much knowledge here. Not just that, you can relate to these people because they're just... 
a few years older than you or just a few levels above you. They're not like a sage in Omaha with a few billion dollars in the bank account. So that makes it very real for you. And that's when I get the best lessons. That's number one. And secondly, is actually the connection, the network. So I think Twitter has allowed me to meet a lot of investors who are extremely successful and you will never know how successful they are until you actually approach them. Like you meet super low-key guys with only like maybe 3,000 followers, but then they are like multi-millionaires whatsoever and very... <laughs> unassuming right so i was chatting with this guy on twitter and this guy is like eight figure portfolio purely in tesla which i, I don't own but super concentrated and you get to meet people like this and he's still in his day job so you meet a lot of these unique interesting folks with their own perspectives of as to like oh how investing changed their life but he's still in his day job for certain reasons what what have you and so that was how i think uh, twitter kind of opened my eyes to investing and to meeting people yeah yeah i know you know i i could relate to you as well i i think i did not have any background apart from a you know a short period of time working for a fund. But I've seen how investing have leveled the playing field for anyone who wants to grow their wealth. Mm. And, and it's amazing. So let's talk about one thing, right? So as, I, as what we mentioned earlier, you know, I've known you for quite some time. I know you personally uh, frequent a gym a lot. You talk about habits, you talk about growth a lot as well. You know, I find that you are incredibly motivated in life. You really want to succeed big time. So what are some principles behind how you live your life and you know, what's the driving force behind this? person called Mexico. Okay, got it. Let me just say and, and caveat this, that first of all before I answer, right? So yes, I would agree I'm very driven and motivated, but I would say I'm also wired a bit differently. And so that may actually be a shortcoming. <laughs> like, I need to grow. Like, um, I always feel like if I'm not growing, something's wrong, which may not exactly be a good thing just to share because this means I'm just obsessed with learning and growing. But of course, to share, uh, to answer your question, that's how I kind of delve into the world of habits a long time back. So just to share a bit of backstory, I chance upon James Clear, which today he's super well-known in Twitter or even almost everyone knows him for his Atomic Habits book. I was super lucky to chance upon him when I was uh, in university in SMU in Singapore. I was only 23 back then. So that was the year 2013. Um, back then, James Clear was definitely not a well-known celebrity yet. Uh, today he is. Uh, back then, he was just writing his blogs every twice a week uh, on his blog on jamesclear.com on .net, I believe, and sharing about productivity hacks, what have you. And so that was when he was the first person ever that exposed me to the idea of you want to achieve something, try and make it a habit. Because if you can make something part of your everyday routine such that if you don't do it, it becomes unnatural, then success will eventually happen. It's not a matter of whether you will get it or not. It's just a matter of when you will get it, if you keep at it. So I thought that was very eye-opening for me. So I started really um, going down the whole rabbit hole of habits, read everything from like James Clear, Charles Duick, which is the author of like, I think the, the Power of Habit. And so today, I think a principle that I live by to kind of answer your question is that anything I want to set my target to do, whether it's investing or back then it was health and fitness for gym, whatever, uh, is to do it every day. And I learned this in my time going to the gym. That is, a, and that's why I differ a bit from James Clear. I feel that you cannot set the habit to, I'm, I'm going to do this only like one, three, five, which is every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Because if you do that, if let's say on a Wednesday you feel lazy, then you'll tell yourself, okay, maybe Wednesday I do, I'll do on Thursday. So instead, I realized that if you want to build a habit, you will do it every day. And so how I built the habit for investing was to kind of make it a habit to read like one annual report every day. Some days, of course, I don't finish the whole annual report, but that allowed me to keep that momentum. So I'm a big believer in habits, change my life, all because of James Clear and my habit of working out, which then uh, transferred to the other aspects of my life. So yeah, I don't know whether that answers the question. But yeah, it, it does, it does. You know, so talk about habits. We talk about people who are successful, you know, they are often defined by their habits. So why don't we just jump on to the next question? Most investors will look up to Peter Lynch 
you know, some of them were looking to look up to Warren Buffett. But personally for yourself, do you have any particular role models when it comes to investing or any interesting experience which has, you know, left an impact on the way you invest or really solidify an investment framework that you are using currently? Yes, uh, definitely. So I think all credit to Buffett, definitely. He's, I think all the lineage goes back to him, even if you're a growth value, whatever, it goes back to him in terms of how to think about the fundamentals of a business. Uh, but I should not talk about Buffett now because everyone talks about him. So I'll just share, uh, if you ask me, I think three investors that have been a big impact on my current investing style. And of course, in full disclosure, I've only been investing using the long-term way of investing, which is growth investing and really thinking like an owner for only like three years. So to be honest, track record is also not the longest, but at least as of now, these are the people who have made the biggest impact so far. Uh, number one is of course you. And I'm saying this not just because it's, I'm on your podcast or like Kevin didn't like twist my arm and like say this in my podcast. No, it's I think number one, because you were the first or Kevin, you were the first investor who taught me to look at companies from the lens of growth. But I think beyond that, there were two main things that really stood out in terms of what I learned from growth investing mastery, which is Jim. First thing is that I have to have exceptionally high standards for what I let into my portfolio. So I think you teaching me to accept only the best of the best, that kind of forces you to look at everything from an opportunity cost point of view. If that, okay, I may let this company into my portfolio and it's good, nothing wrong with that. But does it beat the worst name in my portfolio? And if it doesn't, then shouldn't my dollars be put to better use? So you taught me how to really look at something from a very high standard point of view. And number two, you actually taught me how to actually have concentration in the portfolio. And I think this is a very controversial topic. Some people are like, okay, no, concentration, you have to, uh, like, it's, it's not for beginners because you can just blow up. And I agree. And of course, we can get into position sizing or like how we build a portfolio later. But you taught me how to actually have a concentrated portfolio such that if the, the stock moves, my portfolio actually moves. Mm. And I, I think... To each is own. Not everyone will agree with this, but these vibes a lot with my own personality because I'm the kind of person who, if those people that know me, I'm extremely minimalist. I hate clutter. So I like a concentrated portfolio because I like to know what I own and I don't like to have like 20 names in my portfolio where I don't even know what the stock is or what the business does. So these two things are what I really took away from growth investing mastery and of course, Kelvin yourself. Second investor that has a big change in my thinking or gave me a whole new lens to look at things is actually Fred Liu, Hayden Capital. So I'm sure you are good friends with him. Kelvin pretty much knows a lot of well-known investors. But for Fred Liu, the thing that I learned from him was, of course, number one was reading his uh, thesis report on Shopee or C-Limited. This was in... Uh, 2019, but I believe he published it in 2018. But beyond C Limited for whatever an, an amazing stock it was, beyond that, it taught me two things from learning more about Fred Liu. So I'm a big like Fred Liu cult fan here. Uh, number one is that it taught me how to analyze marketplace business models. And that's something that can really carry over to a lot of other businesses if you look at it. For example, it's like building a new country, right? You want to have green, always solve the supply problem first and afterwards the demand will come that you incentivize one side, what, what have you. So uh, that taught me how to look at uh, marketplace models or like how to build kind of network effects kind of business models. So that was very helpful. Second thing that I learned from Fred, which obviously I'm sure he will change and evolve as he does, as we all do, and that is, it's okay to have a very limited circle of competence. Mm. So I recall, because I went down the whole Fredly rabbit hole as well, <laughs> kind of person, if I learn something, I'll yeah. go down the whole freaking rabbit hole. Yep. Uh, there were a few interviews that he did. Was it with Tillman or whoever, that, or some interview with Business Insider? He shared that, hey, his circle of competence is small, but it's okay. So he focuses mainly on like consumer tech, which is a lot of e-commerce names yes. as of now. I, I know he recently moved into like the crypto space, but yes. before that was very concentrated, uh, very limited. He says it's okay to have a small circle of competence and it 
expands as your companies grow because as your companies grow and expand, you're forced to learn the business model that they expand into. So I thought that was very cool because all along, I think Warren Buffett made known the, the concept of circle of competence, but I think it's very surface. It doesn't really dig deep into it. Fred Lee was the first person that allowed me to understand it's okay to have a narrow circle of competence. Yep. And so that had a big impact on my philosophy and the way I invest in my current portfolio. That is, I'm okay with not investing in like mm-hmm. all the 10 other names out there that's going through the roof, mm-hmm. but I must know my companies well and I must actually have a very specialized knowledge in that field. So that's mm-hmm. how I invest today. Could it change in future? Yes, maybe uh, as I evolve for sure, but that was a big impact on how I structure my names and portfolio. Third investor, which is the final one that I think has a very monumental shift in the way I think. Mm. It's actually David Gardner from Motley Fool. Mm. There's actually this one statement, which I'm sure today it's a super big cliche, and that is make your portfolio reflect the best vision of your future. Because I realized one thing that is if I'm not excited by the names that I own, then it's just going to be like a stock to me. If it's going to be like a stock to me, I will not hold it long term. If I'm not going to hold it long term, I'll never ever read the returns that investors will make from holding something long-term. And I think if you actually look at a track record of a lot of companies, whether it's Amazon, Monster Beverage, what have you, the best returns normally only come at the tail end. And the tail end only happens after a period of time. So if you backtrack the logic, to hold something till the tail end can happen, which is that exponential like hockey stick curve, Mm. you need to be excited because otherwise you won't hold. So that really changed my perspective. So he was the one that taught me how to have my portfolio. Like today, I'm very proud to say most things that I own in my portfolio, like you got to freaking murder me to get me to sell it. Like even if, even (laughs) though I know if if it's doing poorly, the execution sucks, I will trim it, which maybe we can get into that later, Peloton. Uh, But uh, most of it, I actually love the company genuinely and the founder and the management team. So that played a big part. So yeah, yourself, Kelvin, Fred Liu, Hayden Capital and Motley Fu, David Gardner. Well, Max, I'm honored to be one of the top three investors who have influenced your investing journey. And I'm glad that you found our Growth Investing Mastery or GM program helpful. Also, for our listeners who want to learn more about growth investing and buy into quality companies, I hold a few free investing classes every quarter just for all of you. In this class, I will share three growth investing secrets that will help you build a profitable portfolio. Simply go to bit.ly slash FTI podcast 28 to find out more. So that's bit.ly slash FTI podcast with it to find out more. There are limited seats available, so sign up today. Also, the thing is that results is often created in different ways for different investors. So for myself, for Fred and David Garner, I think we all invest in, in very different ways. But I guess for you, you know, you have your own personality, your own blend to it as well. So I, I kind of see that you have blended a lot of things together and created your own dish, right? So right now, is there anything unique about your your process or what's your investment framework when it comes to selecting companies? What would you emphasize more? Business model, management, valuations? Why not just share with us? Got it. Yeah, so I think I'm going to get murdered for saying this, but yeah, valuation comes very, very late or sometimes maybe uh, it's the least of the, the my priorities, even though I still look at it, obviously. But sometimes I actually break valuation rules. And so that's what I want to be come clean with first. So how I actually, what's my investing process? Like I think, first of all, I'll start with uh, my research process to give a bit more yep. uh, color around it, like the analyst like to say in the earnings call. So so you're actually right to say that my investing style is really a blend of the investors that suit my personality. And I like to, because of my marketing background or where I come from, I like to blend psychology a lot of investing. Because I really think investing for all the returns and numbers that you look at, the, the Excel spreadsheet, the earnings statement, what, what have you, it's actually an emotional activity 
much more so than an intellectual activity. Like, I mean, you can have the best correct valuations, you can buy in, but if you can't hold through all this volatility, which is actually an emotional experience, you'll never be able to make all these big returns, right? Let's face it. So I really think investing is an emotional experience. So one investor that played a very big shift in me, which I didn't mention just now, I forgot because there's a, f- a lot of investors, uh, not just three, who kind of made an impact on me was actually Guy Spear. So in one of his books, which is, I believe, uh, The Education of a Value Investor, the biggest thing I loved that book so much was the biggest takeaway for me was when he chose to shift to Switzerland uh, into some rural, uh, not rural, but acquired the place in Switzerland, acquired part of Switzerland, so that he would not be exposed to Wall Street, which is also, I think, Buffett did say that was his conscious choice to why he decided to stay in Omaha instead of being in New York. And but So Guy Spears' book taught me that my environment is super important. So that thing shaped my investing philosophy by quite a fair bit. And number two was, he was the first person that I ever learned from, which kind of taught me something that I already knew, but put it into investing perspective. And that is like, always consume the primary information first instead of going for the secondary information. Because it's like the Charlie Munger quote, right? Where like the human brain is a bit like the human egg. But once the sperm goes in or if the two sperm, whatever the sperm goes in, the other things cannot go in because you are already colored, like you have already formed that opinion. So whatever you let in first is super crucial. So I'm very particular about what information I let into my head first because I know it will color the rest of the lens. Like just give a simple example. If I had learned about all sorts of funny investing styles before I met Jim, Hmm. I would maybe not have been as good an investor today or have as good a result as I have today because I may have viewed that lens with a different, investing with a very different lens. But because I was very lucky to come across you at the very beginning, the way I look at investing is very growth-oriented because it shaped my worldview. Does that make sense? Yeah. So for me, I look at primary information first. So to share, how do I start my research process? It always starts with the financials. Okay, so yeah, number one, it will chance upon the, I will transport the company either through Twitter or someone else share it. But then I'll never read the reports. I will, I will bookmark it on Pocket, which is the app I use, but I will not read it because I don't want to color my, my lens. And so I'll go into the financials. I have my own Excel model where, it's, where I would have the template preview already. Once I put in all the last eight to 12 quarters worth of the, the key metrics, revenue, gross profit, operating margin, most of that are loss making. So you get an adjusted EBITDA, what have you, and then uh, the GMV or any of these key variables. And if those things show a clear increasing trend, get me excited, then I start reading the last six quarters or eight quarters of earnings calls to get a direction of the business. Then I read the end report business section to get a feel of the business model. If these three things check out and I still feel interested in the business and it's still exciting based on the direction, the business model, and of course the numbers, which is the financials, then what I'll do is I will spend maybe a few weeks and I say a few weeks because I'm working full-time nine to five. So I only do this in my weekends. I'll spend a few weeks watching as many interviews as I can of the founder on YouTube or the Spotify podcast interviews, all these things. And so, you know, this, everything is all primary information and report earnings calls, financials, and the, the founder CEO interviews. Once I have all these notes compiled and I make my own kind of three, four page memo, then only then do I start reading all the Substack Seeking Alpha articles that come in because at least then, I form my own opinions already. So that's my process. And I realized I didn't answer your question as to what I look for. So I look for mainly two things. The business model has to be unique in the sense where I must, or not just unique, but I must know how to actually understand the business. For example, C-limited network effects. I'm just giving a very surface view, even though it's deeper than that, right? Example, uh, some other companies, it could be like a brand mode, what have you. So I must understand 
what makes the business model unique. If I don't, if, even though the numbers can be going, if I don't understand, I will not buy it. And then number two, I must like the manager, which is the CEO. Mm-hmm. And because I place a lot of uh, emphasis on the CEO interviews, so we can talk more, talk more about this later. But I say for Zoom, which is a company I used to own and has did very well for me, I was just madly in love with Eric Yuan. I think this guy is extremely customer-centric. So that kind of formed a big part of my investment thesis when I invested in Zoom last year. So management competency and management customer love is one. And then secondly, is the business model. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's great. You're dropping a lot of golden nuggets. I think pretty sure that listeners are learning a lot from you. So let's get to where things will be a bit more interesting. You know, we probably have made some painful lessons or some really huge gains in the stock market. And these stories are great stories to tell because they serve as good reminders for us. So you have done very well in names like C, Zoom, and others. One of your tweet trends went viral recently. It's about this company called Peloton. So I, I kind of think, you know, one of the reasons why you point to stock because you frequent a gym, Perhaps yep. that, that's something that <laughs> yes. relates to you, shouts at you. Yep. Uh, but one thing though, like subsequently, Peloton's performance was not up to expectation and there was a sell-off. So, you know, maybe for the listeners, right, what compelled you towards this company called Peloton and what was the thought process going through? The initial attention they have gotten, then seeing the earnings results of Peloton. Got it. Yeah, so I, I wanted to share this even before you asked because I think it's a very <laughs> good lesson as we are recording this, which is uh, end November. <laughs> this is very fresh. It's a very fresh wound. So uh, when just now, Kelvin, earlier you said that the stock wasn't up to expectations, that's an understatement and the stock dropped like 50% in a week. So I'll share more about that. But So I'll just cut to the chase as to why I first bought into it first to give some backstory so that you guys have some context. So number one, yeah, you nailed it, which I think I did drop some hints earlier on. I only buy businesses where I can understand within my circle of, uh, limited circle of competence. Yeah. So yeah, because I frequent the gym a lot, I understand that music is what makes a workout tick, what have you. And so I bought Peloton because when Peloton is a fitness company where they sell exercise bikes, what we call a spinning bicycle machines with like a live instructor that's being channeled through a screen in front of the spinning uh, bike so it's kind of like a digital workout in, in that sense but it's it's live right with the instructor or there's also recorded version so i was very into the company for a few reasons number one is as a workout enthusiast myself which is actually not so good i think which i'll share later it did make me realize that actually yeah, i understand why people are addicted so a lot of uh, the bears on wall street or the bears of the company who are not who are against the company or not not bullish about the company say that hey you know what it's just a bicycle with an iPad on top and, and that makes sense correct but from a exercise point of view I know that there's more to this because when you have good music good instructors and you feel really good it makes the workout very enjoyable like for example when I do a deadlift or a squat uh, having a, a nice music versus having a poor music can affect maybe I can do one or two reps more or less depending on how the music is it's just something about the endorphins or the adrenaline whatever so I realized that, okay, so this is something that people don't see because maybe they don't exercise. Number two, so I did spend a lot of time going through the scuttlebutt, which is reading through the customer reviews. And that is on the Facebook group, the amount of customer cultish love for the product is insane. It's just through the roof. I'll give you a few examples. When people whose parents passed away, uh, they lost their son or their daughter in a fire, in a fire and got killed in a fire, extremely sad. They will post photos of their kids, all these loved ones that passed away and say, hey, you know what, guys? 
I'm going to be riding the 6am ride today. I need your love. I need your support. Please show it to me. So people post their entire life, super sensitive personal stuff, all that because it's a community that I see. So it's a bit like, um, I'm just going to say, it's a bit like, like church, I feel. So <laughs> there's a bit of that kind of spiritual element there. So these few things add up customer love, that kind of cult fan base. And because I understand the business model, got me to buy it uh, into Peloton. So then I'll share where the mistake comes in. So Kelvin, you just rightfully mentioned that I think about two weeks back, they released their, their, their first quarter earnings because their financial year is starting in about, it's, it's normally like June to uh, September. So we just released the earnings just a few weeks back. And yeah, so I think they only guided for like, I think like a small percentage of revenue increase and it was all below expectations. So the stock tanked, I think in one week, it dropped like 50%. And so, of course, that was a horrible experience to share it openly. As I wouldn't lie and say, oh, because I'm an ownership mentality, I don't feel a thing. That's, that's bullshit, right? So, obviously, I feel the pain because my portfolio is concentrated, right? So, it's not like super diversified. So, I will take a hit there. And so, looking back, I think I did share this with you over dinner um, mm. last week. And that is, do I still like the company? Okay, so, I think I'll share a few things. I'll share my perspective after that thing happened and where I am now with the company. So, what happens is after the earnings release, I, I read through the reports, read the earnings call, I realized that, okay, it's not executing at the level that I need them to execute that. So, like, the, the growth that they gathered for is poor. Yep. Um, the number of, in the earnings call, management even said that they actually overestimated the demand that they will get in their physical stores due to the reopening, they overestimated, which means it wasn't as high as they expected. And the website traffic also wasn't as high as they expected, but they went to actually build a lot of supply needed. Really. So they're over inventory, over excess capacity. And then number two, um, on the day after earnings release, they actually sent a memo to the whole company to say, as of now, we're going to stop hiring all hiring expansion as of immediate effect. So that, man, this is a big red flag for me. Mm. So even though I, I did love the company, I realized, okay, that is something I need to pay attention to. So I'll share the mistakes that I made first around this company and what I'm doing right now. So the mistake I made for this was because I realized that when I was researching the company, my research wasn't based on like speculation. Everyone says it's going up, so I bought it, right? I bought it because I understood the company. I read the reports. I did my own version of the research. And to me, at least personally, it checked all the boxes for me. So I feel there wasn't a, a, an issue with my my research process or maybe it can be improved but the issue happened with one big mistake which is hopefully you can share with your listeners something to learn from that is my position sizing was a big mistake so give some back so i started buying the company around last year in around june around may or june when covid hit and the reason is because like i mentioned during covid i had a lot of free time to read and read and read so i chance upon peloton and so i started buying them in trenches which is correct it's correct based on my buying discipline to only buy is execute. And back then last year, they were executing beautifully. It was a rocket ship, not just the price, but their growth and the key metrics. And then in end of the year, last in December, they actually acquired this company. It's a well-known fitness company. I'm not sure whether you actually have heard of them. It's called Precall. So Precall in the, in the gym, and I know that because I've been gymming for the last 10 years, it's like you go to every gym, it's either a Precall machine or a live fitness machine. Of course, there's a few other brands, but Precall is a very big thing in the fitness industry. So when they made the announcement that they acquired Precall because they wanted to go into the commercial side. So in my mind, the overly optimistic kind of mode comes in and I start playing all these rosy pictures. Okay, they have already dominated the retail side with all the, all the consumer love. Now they're going to go to the commercial side. I think really they're going to own it. So that was at a point in time, as funny as it sounds, the stock also was an all-time high because I think people were very bullish about it. All-time high, that was when I didn't care about valuations and like they're going to dominate. So I let the 
overly optimistic, bullish side, kind of just take control of my whole mind. And I went in heavy. So before that, my position size was still okay. I was only buying in trenches, which was the correct thing to do. I bought as they executed, which means I wasn't buying based on emotions. But that pre-call acquisition just made me back up the truck. You feel what I'm saying? So I kind of yeah. backed up the truck. I load up the position. That pushed up my whole average price. Yeah to become a lot higher than it was because that was when I went in on a very heavy trend. It was a very unbalanced position size. And then, of course, this year, I added up more as they executed. And then, of course, when this news hit, I was down 50%, obviously. Yeah. And so because of that, I, I learned a big lesson. That is like, number one, the position size that I took or the way I sized the position through time was not correct. I should have actually sized it properly and stick to discipline. And number two, be aware of the valuation. So that's the second mistake that I made. So these two mistakes, position sizing and the timing that I sized the position with and so what did I do? And that's something I think it can be quite useful to share with people so that they don't make this uh, silly, stupid mistake. And that is, or this is something I'm glad at least I'm able to do because I have a few other positions. I'm, I'm not like fully all in the peloton no matter how much I love it, even though I gym a lot. So yeah. I have a few other positions. So this allowed me to look at it for what it is, which is like, you know, Ray Dalio says, it's going to be a hyper release. So execution wasn't checking out. Your company suddenly, um, this company, CEO makes a decision to suddenly stop all hiring. Mm-hmm. To me, that's not what, what a growth company should look like. A growth company should be expanding, maybe not expanding, Spending aggressively like Shopee, but still yeah. should be still be expanding. The fact that you suddenly cut all hiring means that you either overly build a capacity. Yeah. And so when I look at those things, uh, do I still believe in the company? Yeah, I do. Do I still kind of like the management team? Yeah, I do. The founder, John Foley, is a hustler, had to pitch to a lot of VCs to get the funding. So I respect that. But based on the track, the, the trends that's uh, based on what's happening right now, now as a, as a hyper release, I realized that, hey, moving forward, if the company and the management is cutting costs, they're not able to expand. They are guiding for almost stagnant revenue growth. What's going to happen to the stock price? Is going to be stuck there for probably the next one, two years as well. And if, can you say, like, you know, the Buffett or Charlie Munger way, oh, just buy and never sell mm-hmm. because you're an owner? Can. But I think if my portfolio is so concentrated and if I'm going to have my money stuck there for the next two years, it's going to be a big opportunity cost. So with those factors in mind due to the poor execution, I started trimming, trimming, trimming. And actually, I, I'm fully out of Peloton as, as I'm speaking right now. So painful decision. Quite frankly, when I took the, the full loss I can share, it's actually kind of you can probably buy a car in Singapore with the amount of money. And of course, that's where the funny thing is. And that looking back, because uh, one thing I've learned being in the investing world and and, and seeing a lot of top investors, you want to think in terms of percentages, right? So yes. actually this loss to me without going too much into detail into my portfolio, and that is, it's actually like less than 4% of my, my, my 4 or 5% of my portfolio. So it's still fine. It, on that case, I can still take the loss. But the thing here was that when you think of the absolute number, you just, you just <laughs> cannot help it, right? Yeah, like, that's crazy. Wow, dude, yeah. you know how many, like, I can, I can have my full yearly expenses plus a bit more I can survive oh, on this yeah. or like how many Thai fun I can, I can eat, you know? <laughs> and like, but then, you shouldn't be thinking this way because as your investment portfolio grows, you will need to start thinking percentages. Your fluctuations will be in the six figures on a daily basis as it grows, right? So that was just a funny thing to share with you, but it still stinks thinking of the absolute number, like you mentioned a holiday, what have you. So it's very fresh and very raw that's not able to share in such detail. So that's what I did. That's the mistake that I made and I hope this is a good lesson for uh, whoever is listening to this. And oh, let me just add in, can I just add one more thing? Yeah. That is, 
it's so interesting because uh because of my post in Pel- on on Twitter on Peloton that went viral, a lot of Peloton bulls reached out to me before the earnings. So we were all like hanging out in chat groups, what have you. And this is so I think it's such a good lesson because when the stock price crashed, I know this person, which I should not name to mm-hmm. keep it private. Mm-hmm. This guy is all in Peloton. So yeah. he made like uh, over a million on Peloton, I believe, calls options yes. and the actual stock itself, the actual share last year did very well. And then after this crash, so he spoke to me. I asked him, hey, what's your game plan for yes. him? Oh, he asked me what's my game plan. I said, I'm going to gradually trim and cut. And then I think like kind of maybe he was unhappy because this guy is fully developed. Right? <laughs> and then he's, and then I asked, so I asked him, I said, hey, what, what's your game plan? And he was very nice to, to share. Like, he said, oh, actually, I'm just going to lay low for the next two years because I think he's so bullish about Peloton that when this whole thing happened, a lot of people were like kind of laughing at him on Twitter because it's very open space, right? Yes. And then he was so public about it. So he's, he's going to lay low. Number two, I asked him, how much are you down? He said it was basically more than half a million. I, I won't go into the specifics to respect his privacy, but it's more than half a million. And then I, I asked him, so what's your plan? He said, yeah, he's probably just going to hold true, which I find very sad, right? Because obviously in such a case where the stock price is not going to move and you don't know whether it's going to move because even the management themselves are not clear, you should be reallocating really, right? It, it's not so much about trying to, oh, uh, let, let hope that it rises. You need to reallocate and then find better vehicles for your money to go and latch onto, which is to find better companies. But the fact that he was down 700k, obviously I know mentally, it's hard to exit, man. Even though yeah. you know logically, you need to redeploy, redeploy, redeploy. You can't because you're, you're down like um, quite quite a, a fair bit of money, like more than half a million, right? So because of that, I think the lesson here is always size the positions correctly. So for me, I was able to exit because like I mentioned, it's only like less than 4% of my portfolio kind of loss. So I could take that, wouldn't affect my, my year-to-date returns by much. But that was a big lesson in proper position sizing and sizing it according to time. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible, yeah. Max. So what you have just shared, you know, it's definitely going to be the highlight of this podcast, <laughs> really. You know, most investors, they cannot escape the sunk cost fallacy, you know, the, the kind of emotional commitment that they put in, mm-hmm. the money. And sometimes, I, I think you even mentioned, sometimes when you share companies out publicly, you know, when mm-hmm. you want to make a U-turn, it's going to be very hard. Yep. But what I saw in you, I think you have that mental agility, the flexibility to kind of do a U-turn. Because, you know, I also like you how you brought in the concept of being a hyper-realist, right? There's a mental model from yep. Ray Dalu. So it, it kind of shows that, you know, sometimes reading broadly out of investing can kind of help us to make good decisions, good investing decisions. So thanks for sharing the story. I think it's probably so hard not to be emotional, <laughs> but... What you have done just now is really turning this into an incredible learning lesson for everyone. I also like the idea where you brought in, you know, look at percentage instead of looking at absolutes because if not, right, looking at, the, <laughs> you know, I, I do have some investing friends, right? Investors, friends, uh, daily swing could be a price of a condominium in Singapore, mm, right? Mm. If you look at that, you probably will lose appetite. You may not sleep, but yeah. you think of percentages that works out to, to be more uh, bearable, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, you'll never be able to build a, a, or maintain a big portfolio if you always think of absolutes, I think that's a big lesson I wanted to share. And that is like, if you always think, oh, this amount that this daily swing can buy a car, can buy uh, <laughs> my, my daughter's education in future when she grows up, then you will always just take profit. Man. And if you keep taking profit, you will never be able to hold true. Right? So like, because think about this for a second, if like say you want to hold true long term, is your portfolio going to hit seven figures, eight figures one day? Yeah, for sure. That means your, your daily swing is going to be at least a few hundred K a day. And then if you use that to like, oh, wow, this 100K cannot, I cannot, I think this one can buy a holiday, can buy a house, can buy a car. If you relate everything to objects, to material, tangible things, then this means 
you will likely always cap your portfolio at a certain size because you cannot take those swings. So I think, which is why I say at the start, it's a very, investing to me, it's more of an emotional activity than an intellectual one, purely because of this. So it's more important to go and have psychological strategies that allows you to kind of go through these things that fit your personality than just trying to get the DCF for the valuation, right? In my opinion, yeah. Yeah, great. So for the, our listeners who are tuning in from other countries as well, just want to say Thai fun refers to uh, economy rice in Singapore. <laughs> so there's a there's a dish that you know it costs less than probably six or eight dollars. You know, it's, yeah. it's a mixture of rice, vegetables, meats, whatnot. So it's something that most Singaporeans eat if you want to save money. So yeah. uh, I think that's a good analogy yeah. there. So probably lost. Uh, yeah. Many plates of Thai fun. <laughs> yeah, or like, I think they call it, was it Panda Express in the States? Yeah. yeah. Panda Express, you can get like, yeah, it's like basically like noodles or rice with like vegetables and meat, like Kevin mentioned. I, I yeah. think it's probably a year worth <laughs> of uh, Panda Express. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and also uh, another lesson that we have learned is we can definitely be concentrated, but we also have to do position sizing, scaling our position nicely as well. Great. So I think that the world has have changed a lot these days. And in fact, I'm not too sure about next few years where, you know, this possibility of metaverse is getting closer Mm -hmm. and closer. We have a lot of exciting things, e-commerce, we have different payment methods, metaverse, software businesses, and many others. And one of the biggest value disruption that I see for any businesses, right, is just simply being disrupted by a lot of technologies, right? You have seen how technologies are accelerating uh, at a much faster pace compared to the last decade. So overall, how are you going to position your portfolio to be, to be future-proof or I would say companies that you're investing in, you know, they stay relevant for the next five to six years because it's quite a scary thing to mm. think that one day your, your companies could be uh, disrupted by emerging technologies and also are there some industries that you steer away from? Yeah, so I, I generally steer away from industries that are the very super brick and mortar kind of like example, property or like even like stuff that I don't understand like banking. So I'll just cover that, that answer first, uh, that question. Yeah, so let me just share something right, which is quite interesting. That is, yeah, because, you know, like you actually sent me this question before this, this interview yes. to kind of look through at least to kind of mentally prepare. When I, so most questions I thought, okay, I, I can answer them because you're just sharing your real life experience. This question was the one that stunned me because I actually, to be honest, I didn't have an answer. Yeah. And I was thinking, hmm, but because I didn't have an answer as to how I kind of future-proof it, but I have a, a few ways that I do to kind of ensure that I'm at least I wouldn't have big losses. But I'll just share yeah. a, a bit more detail. So I was thinking, should I go and like maybe go and Google something because I had to prepare <laughs> and try and sound smart or maybe just give my real thoughts. So I'll just share up front. It's going to be a terrible answer or maybe you can chip in later. I don't always think of how to future-proof it. Mm-hmm. But one thing that has helped me to avoid a lot of these companies, or if let's say in future, even if the metaverse takes off, even if the whole world's payment currency goes digital, yeah. and that is a few things I've learned from a few investors. So this yes. investor that I learned from that, okay, same thing, I think just now you asked were the top people who were affected. <laughs> There's a lot, so I yeah. forgot, but now that you mentioned. There's this investing firm in US from Laguna Beach, you know, as WCM which is uh, cap- WCM Capital Management. Yes, it's right. run by Paul Black yes. and uh, Kurt Winrich, I believe. Yep. So uh, same thing, during the COVID um, rabbit hole days of uh, being stuck at home, I went down the whole rabbit hole of just learning their investing mental model. Yep. And then what they do is that they focus a lot on finding companies that have increasing mode trajectory. So this is what I thought was very cool. They don't just focus on the size of the mode. They focus on how is the mode growing. So yeah. that's number one. And secondly, another thing I learned, I forgot who I learned this from was that and at all times, you want to always find management who are always willing to keep this like disrupting themselves and keep renewing, mm-hmm. sorry, di- renewing themselves and keep pushing. Mm-hmm. I think 
was it Safnit Singh or someone's podcast that I was listening to, which Safnit Singh is the CEO of Power Technology, that said this, and this, in the long run, anything that can be copied will be copied. Anything that, uh, mm-hmm. anything can or will be, any advantage can or will be copied, pardon me. Mm-hmm. And so the only advantage you have is actually the people, the culture in your team. Yeah. So I'm giving a very indirect answer because like I mentioned, honestly, uh-huh. I don't have a way to kind of future-proof because it's quite tough. But there's a few mental models that I use if it helps to kind of guide the process. So number one is looking at this thing that I learned from WC, which is the mode trajectory. So I always ask myself at all times when I look at the earnings calls, the quarter results, does this company's is it increasing or decreasing at this point in time? For example, let's just give the most recent example. C-Limited, Shopee just released its earnings last two days back this week, right? Yen Jun Wang, right, Chief Corporate Officer, in the recent earnings call, the one just a few days back, Quarter 3 just mentioned, hey, you know what? They're implementing certain games or what have you for Shopee sellers to try and make it what, what we call gamify the approach right. to help them understand how to use Shopee's features better. Yeah. Now, this tells, and, and so when you think deeper, what does this mean? Because if the sellers are happier, they will sell more on Shopee and then more sellers will come in, which helps the network effect to build more buyers, more sellers to and fro. So when you think deeper about it, like, okay, they are actually taking actions to try and widen the mode. So is the mode trajectory increasing? Yeah, it is. So based off this, I'm looking for actions like this number one that helps me to kind of um, allows me to know that this company is still continuing to build that advantage and it's not stagnant I'm not buying into a, a Nokia or like a an, an eBay that's a very wide mode back in the days but actually it's shrinking right so that's number one secondly is actually the the, the management and, and this something is a mental model that I learned and I saw a lot of similar patterns mm-hmm. so for example I think in the investing world most of us if you're serious about investing you will have read Jeff Bezos shareholder letters since yep. 1997 all the way to today and you realize that Jeff Bezos in his early years or even till now but at least in the early shareholder letter years he always talks about this one thing and that is the com- he, he was I think one of the rare few CEOs that I've read unless I have, probably I haven't read enough that pushes for technology to be in the business. He keeps saying mm. that the business must embrace technology. So you've noticed they use a lot of technology, they, they invent a lot of solutions to have their, their algorithms, have a lot more selection, a lot more variety to give the best price. So they, this tells me this company, the CEO is a very technology-centric CEO. Another thing that I saw similar pattern was that that's why I think it's so important to always read mental models because it gives you a mosaic to kind of see similar patterns and spot pattern recognition was when I read Forest Lee so Brain C Limited again yes. Forest Lee earlier this year I think the memo to his uh, employees got leaked right and so it, it was online and then I read the memo to, to the C Limited employee same thing he was also talking about how C Limited or Shopee or what have you has to use technology to benefit its customers so this is a company who is way way younger than Amazon, but you see a similar pattern. The CEO is very into technology. Another example I can give, which I'm not sure whether this one the users will know, is actually this company. So this company to be in full disclosure, I don't study that deeply, but I, I, I love learning from CEOs that I, I can actually study from, uh, learn from. That is HDFC Bank, right? It's a very well-known bank in India. Yes. Uh, the CEO also, even that you know banking, India very rural. The CEO is, if you read his uh, shareholder letters or you watch his interviews online, I forgot what's his name. It's the same thing. He's trying to use technology to kind of make the lives better for the consumers of the bank by making it easier for transactions, what have you. So I can't give the full details because I'm not fully studying the company, but I recall watching a few interviews. So all these CEOs, they're all very technology-centric. So this is a very long answer to your question. We have a very terrible answer. But yeah, so three things to try and future-proof my portfolio. That is number one, I look for more trajectory has to be increasing. That allows me to know that is the company's advantage is still growing. So can it 
always future-proof, I'm not sure, but at least yep. it allows me to know the company is still growing. If the company is still growing and still building advantage, this means at least the price will continue to rise, right? Number two, and that is um, like Stephanie Singh mentioned, I look for companies that the culture and the people uh, I feel they are building strong advantages in the way that they run the team. For example, Power Technology, Seth Nitsing, the way he builds his team, is kind of like a 3G capital, very solid kind of culture where it's like, oh, you want to like really execute, execute, execute. As long as the culture is there in the long run, whatever disruptions they face, which every company I think will face disruption at a point in time, at least they can recover. Because I think that's more important than trying to protect yourself from disruption because that may or may not happen because you won't see how disruption hits you. It can hit you from the back, but you won't really know. And number three, find CEOs or companies where they have a very technology-centric leader, so which is the Jeff Bezos, Forrest Lee, HDFC Bank. Uh, I believe JP Morgan also has a similar is it, yeah, uh, kind of model where they're all very technology-centric. So yeah, terrible answer, but I hope this is useful. <laughs> no, I think it's yeah. great. You know, a lot of times, a lot of answers are short and brief, but you are able to give a lot of depth to it. Sometimes the way I, you know, since we are coming to the close end, I, I still feel that, I think the listener is just looking for a dish, but instead they are treated a buffet. <laughs> uh, so that's a lot of incredible nice. uh, ideas over there. So okay. I also like to just hop on to really give my point of view. I know I always believe yeah. in this phrase. It says that, the value of a company is directly proportionate to the value it creates for the world. So I think a lot of times, you know, in the same way, I don't just invest in a normal company. I like to invest in platforms, you know, platforms where the business allows other businesses to build upon and then the business becomes very entrenched, become very sticky as well. And I also think that what's increasingly very limited in this world is time and attention. So I feel that we are living in an era where it's very rich with technology, Google Trends, we can see where people are spending their time mm-hmm. and engagement. I think the fact that when you spoke about Nokia, you know, just using Google Trends alone, you will tell that Nokia is on a downward trajectory the moment that iPhone came about. I think we have to be very nimble and I think being an investor, it also pays a lot to read about into technology. Yeah. Finally, you know, it's great to be where you are right now. You know, personally, I think just within a span of three years or less than that, you know, you have you've grown so much intellectually. But still, you know, there's still many years ahead in your life. So, you know, let's look out a little bit three to five years from now. What would you be doing? You know, when would you be slowing down? And what are a lot more things that you want to achieve in your lifetime? So yeah, say this is the question that I don't have the best answer yes. to. I've been thinking how to answer this when I saw your questions. Uh, and I don't have the best answer. I think I'll share why. Number one, I, I know deep down I'm a very driven person. Like I mentioned, it's this weird thirst within me for growth. So I know I'll always be reading and learning and growing. I think that's what makes me happy. Yes. But to share a bit of background, and that is come from a very Buddhist and trench background. My whole family is Buddhist. Uh, we are devoted Buddhists. I myself, I, I'm a big believer in, in Buddhism, even though I'm, I think a terrible Buddhist because I use a lot of profanity in my everyday language and life. But uh, that's it. I believe a lot in the simple philosophies and principles that they share. I think one thing that I've, I've learned from Buddhism, and that is this thing known as impermanence, right? That is anything can happen. And like, when I say anything, like literally like, they talk about like old age sickness and death. I'm going to go into like a philosophical rabbit hole here, but just pardon me. And that is like, I ask myself, okay, Max, I've achieved like my, my own version of financial freedom. I've achieved like seven yes. figures, what have you at a young age before I'm 30. That's something to really be very happy about. I'm, I'm very blessed. I think a lot of it is really luck uh, because honestly, uh, yeah, even though I put in a lot of hard work, I think three years is too short a track record to say I'm a good investor, what have you. But I ask myself, hey, Max, next month, if I get hit, touch wood, by a terminal illness whatsoever or something 
happens to my health, no amount of money in my bank, even though yeah, it could get me a better hospital, better care, better treatment, no amount, no amount of money in my bank is going to make me happy. Number two, no amount of uh, sashimi or buffet you put in front of me will make an impact on my happiness anymore because the whole thing changes. So if you ask me, I don't have a clear answer as to oh, three to five years. When I was younger, I used to have like, you know, when mm-hmm. oh, I want to be a millionaire by this age, I want to do this, do this, very go-getter. But as I think when I turned 30, which is about last year, I realized that, wow, like I really have seen friends my age or even younger younger who mm. passed away who had certain illnesses that they were fighting and cancer what have you and it's such a young age and I realized that no man has a lease on life man so if you ask me three to five years from now I just know clear on you doing one thing I want to be growing as an individual and I hope to be giving back through two ways number one through my financial means which uh, I'm glad at least I'm able to and number two it's through my ability to speak and share with it is through a podcast like this. I'm more than happy to do to share wisdom, to help people achieve their financial goals and go out there and make an impact on the world. Because to me, money is just a piece of paper. You help you achieve your financial goals, you're still going to do something with the money, right? So hopefully my, my words, my, my insight, my pain and experience, my mistakes can inspire more people to go achieve their own version of financial freedom and then use that money to go make a bigger impact on a purpose, a mission or a cause that you believe in. So yeah, if you ask me, that's my rough trajectory or direction I want to head towards in three to five years time, but no specific things I would give you because I honestly don't have uh, because of my belief in um, impermanence. So I try not to be too specific or precise around that goal that I have. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Yeah, treated our listeners to a, Buffet of knowledge. You talk about growth, you know, who are your role models, your experience on Twitter, uh, Peloton and your lessons, your manner models, about your fitness, the importance of habits, you know, you wanting to contribute to the world and your future plans as well. Are there anything else you wish to share with the investors on how to become better overall, how to live a better life? I think given I'm only 31, I just turned 31 this year, there's still a lot of things that I don't know about this world. So I, I wouldn't dare say I... I'm here to give like wisdom and knowledge, but I think I'll just share from my experience as to two things that really made a very big impact in my life, which I think can help from an investing point of view, right? I think number one is that widen the pattern recognition from if because this is an investing podcast, so I'm trying to give investing things that I think can help widen the pattern recognition. So for me, I'm lucky because I just have a thirst for learning. So it's my personality. So maybe it helps, which you could say I got lucky with that gene that I have of hunger for knowledge. But if you don't have, then find a way to build a habit to learn something either on a day-to-day basis, on a week-to-week basis, be learning something in investing, which is more towards company mental models because the more companies read about, this is something I learned from John Huber, right? Saber Capital Management. That is, you always want to be reading about the companies that you have no intention of buying. Like, would I buy a Facebook and Amazon today? Hell not. <laughs> it's, it's too big, right? Uh, for at least because I'm a growth investor, I buy like maybe smaller companies. So like, uh, I'm not going to buy Facebook or, uh, or Amazon, uh, even though they have solid returns and growth as well, but it's just a bit big for my appetite. So I wouldn't buy that, but I still read their business model so that I can understand and build more dots in my head. Like the famous Steve Jobs quote, right? You can, you can only connect the dots looking back. But my belief is that if you don't even have dots in your head, how are you going to connect anything? So you got to build a, a mosaic or pattern recognition ability by reading up a lot more mental models, either through annual reports or if you are the kind that you fall asleep, the minute you open the 10K, then at least go and read people's people sub-stack analysis on, on their different companies' mental models. So that's number one. Number two, and that is something that is not so investing related, but it's more related to money. And that is, I think it's uh, very important to actually be frugal and be humble. Um, I, I think for me, one reason I was able to kind of accelerate this 
returns of mine was because I was fortunate to start off with a decent capital base, even though, yes, um, my returns, I think, are, are still pretty uh, exciting, even though it's a very short track record. What happens is that I, I think I was able to be very frugal when I was younger. I, I really lived like a, a student. I ate like vegetable rice, which is the Panda Express uh, version uh, in mm-hmm. Singapore uh, every day. So that gave me a decent capital base. And funny enough, looking back, or at least now looking back, even though I've crossed like seven figures, so on and so forth, I still, fun enough, love eating vegetable rice. And I realized these habits allow me to have that level of peace of mind because my expenses, I wouldn't say very low, but pretty okay to the point where I'm not stretching my, my expenses every month. So I'm still going to get by pretty comfortably. And knowing you have this amount of portfolio size with this amount of expenses, it gives you a very big peace of mind knowing that you are really in full control of how you want to spend your time, your destiny, and your life. So that's something to actually give the... The, the, the listeners are, and that is really aim to be frugal because this habit will be good state will give you good state when you eventually hit your own version of financial freedom yeah that's oh that's it. very yeah. inspirational all right so with the final question how can investors find out more about you Okay, uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter because I'm still kind of currently working a nine to five job. So yeah, you can't find me in like a fun, whatever. Uh, it's on Twitter. My handle is uh, HeyMaxKo. That is a H-E-Y-M-A-X-K-O-H. So I tweet about my investing journey, my philosophies, and of course, even other random stuff of things that I'm passionate about, like speaking, marketing, and any things about habits or even personal development. Yep. All right, so with that, thank you everyone for tuning into our episode and thanks, Max, for spending your time with us. Thank you, Kelvin. Thank you for listening to the Growth Investing Secrets Podcast. If you like this podcast, do leave us a review and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Don't forget to tag me as well at Tavessor on Instagram. As always, say no to lousy companies and only buy into the best growth companies in the world. And I'll see you in the next episode.